Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Um, yeah, I, I remember the very first time Pete and I met. Uh, we have a mutual friend, John Carpenter. We met for coffee at Baccarini's in Corvallis. Is that still around? I don't know. But uh, yeah, um, just was so impressed with Pete just from that, that first time. So it's been kind of a, I don't know, mutual appreciation society that we've, we've had over a bunch of years. Um, yeah, I, I remember that phone call when Pete got off the phone with Jen and said, I'm going to be a dad, and uh, I have no idea what I'm getting into. And so we had another friend, Barrett, who was with us, and uh, we went out for a beer, and we said, yeah, you don't know what you're getting into, but it's going to be great. Um, it is true that uh, Pete was named after me, <laughs> chronologically. I am older than Pete. Um, uh, no, his parents didn't know who I was. Um, I wasn't famous then. Still not famous. Not going to happen. Um, the text that uh, Pete preached from last Sunday and the text I'm preaching from today is actually one text uh, that whoever divided up the text for the lectionary decided would get two Sundays instead of just one. So... Um, Pete took the first half in which everybody is thrilled with Jesus and his sermons, and then he gave me the text where people want to throw Jesus off a cliff. (laughs) So thanks for that, Pete. Appreciate that. Um, So it's going to be a really uplifting sermon today about wanting to kill Jesus. So um, yeah, we we got that going for us. So I'd like to, to flip the story upside down and say, when is it that somebody wanted to kill you or felt like they wanted to get you? It reminds me of when I first became a pastor, um, when people wanted to kill me. The congregation that I was serving in Lebanon um, had peaked in 1960, and every single year after that had been at least a small decline. There had never been any huge declines so that people panicked, but it had just been very gradual. So it was 2002 when I showed up, and every year had been the decline. The congregation had gotten older as well as smaller, and I went to the pastor prayer time. A group of about a dozen pastors met every Thursday, and they, they were chatting before our prayer time about the Summer Church Softball League. And I thought, oh, that sounds kind of cool. So I went back to the congregation the next Sunday and looked around, and I saw there were about three of us that could safely be on the softball field. <laughs> that included me. So my, my hope for the next year was that we would grow enough that we could have a softball team the next year. And we did. We got T-shirts that said, Preposterous Presbyterians. Say that 10 times fast. And um, everything was great. We had new families, young families. Everybody was happy. Well, that's not true. Not everybody was happy. Things had, had changed uh, over the year because we had new people. 
And not everybody was thrilled. I could see that um, people were not so positive about me and how things were going. So I thought, what's, what's going on here? So I created a little survey of expectations. Uh, what, were your, what were their expectations of me as their pastor? What were their expectations of the church? And then as these surveys came in and I read them, I found that there were no two that were the same. Everybody had different expectations of me, and they also had different expectations of what their experience of church, what we were as church. So that meant there was no way I could be on the same page with the congregation because there were too many pages for me to be on. So we um, looked at these together. We were able to have a conversation uh, about what are our expectations? What should our expectations be for me and for our church? And out of that congregation, a few more people left the church. But at least we were able to have some focus on where we were going. Expectations are a funny thing. If you don't articulate what you expect, it's actually possible to have contradictory expectations at the same time. So, for instance, the congregation wanted to have new families in there in the, uh, with us, but um, they didn't want to have little kids running around disturbing their quiet, peaceful time before service every Sunday. You can't have little kids without them running around making noise. Um, they wanted to have growth, but they didn't want to change. Change is inevitable. So here's the thing. People get pretty bent out of shape when their expectations aren't met. And that's exactly what happens to Jesus in Luke chapter 4. In our passage today, Jesus confronts the expectations that people have of, of him. And by the end of the passage, with their expectations confronted, they want to toss him over a cliff. So yeah, if you don't meet people's expectations, they will want to kill you, even if you're Jesus. And as a pastor, I knew that I wasn't meeting people's expectations. And though they weren't going to try to to toss me over a cliff, there were those who wanted to toss me out of the church. And as we see in the larger passage, the same people who love Jesus one day are the same people who want to throw him from a cliff the next day. One day his sermons are brilliant, the next they're offensive. One day they love you, the next day they want to kill you. So why did people want to kill Jesus? I mean, we're talking about Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, right? So last Sunday, Pete spoke from the first half of this passage. Now, I didn't listen to his sermon, so it's possible that I may repeat what he said, <laughs> but just know I'm not trying to compete with him as I do so. That's all the Pete jokes I could come up with, so we're done. But, you know, if, if something's good enough to hear once, it's good enough to hear twice, right? 
That's what I tell my kids all the time, because they're like, yeah, I know, you already told that story. Um, All that to say, lucky you, you get to hear this twice. In, In his sermon to his hometown crowd of Nazareth, Jesus reads from the Isaiah scroll. Now, um, he had to roll through that thing for quite a while. It's a big book, 66 chapters of Isaiah, and it takes him a while to finally get to chapter 61. And I can just imagine the congregation's expectations as they sat there on the floor. They didn't have comfy chairs. Only the, the speaker sat back then. When he finally gets to, to chapter 61 and starts to read. And I'm, I'm guessing that he read the entire chapter, not just the first verse and a half that we get from Luke. Luke does some abbreviating. In fact, he, he lets us know that he's abbreviated the sermon that Peter, Peter, that Jesus preached down to just that one sentence. But the key phrase is the final phrase of, of what Luke gives us there. The year of the Lord's favor. It's a term that refers to the year of Jubilee. Jubilee was a Sabbath of Sabbaths. Every week, Jews kept Sabbath. It was a day to uh, rest and be restored. You stop your work, and you're restored to your basic humanity. On Sabbath, nobody is the boss. Nobody's a servant. You are just you. You pray and you play. You enjoy God and you enjoy all the good things of being human and being alive. And then every seventh year was a sabbatical year. The, the land got in on this Sabbath thing. And it, it was left fallow, so it could also be restored. And it, during, as part of a sabbatical year, um, debts were also taken care of and slaves, um, their term was, was completed. And, um, and so there was this kind of social uh, restoration as this, uh, our social economic relationships were kind of restored. And then after seven sabbatical years, on the 50th year was this year of the Lord's favor, this year of Jubilee. Now, not only were debts to be canceled and slaves to be set free, but land was to be returned to the original owner. And there, there was this system to be set up that valued your land. If, if you got into uh, financial straits and you needed to sell your land, if there was 30 years to the year of Jubilee, you could get more for it. But if there's only five years to the year of Jubilee, you could only get less because your land was supposed to return to you on that year. The thing is, year of Jubilee was never kept. It was a great idea. It was a beautiful idea of social restoration, that everything was returned. The playing field was was returned, and everybody was back to the same level, but it never happened. And earlier on in Isaiah, he's scathing when he talks about those fat cows who add field to field, never returning what they should have. So this year of Jubilee was, on one hand, was a nice idea, but completely empty. Because for hundreds of years, they've had this idea, and it's never been fulfilled. 
And yet, on another hand, it was a very politically charged idea because the land was being occupied at that time by the Romans and they wanted the land back. So when Jesus reads this passage, the room is tense. This is one of those you can cut the air with a knife. I mean, it's thick with tension because he has gone to this passage that, again, is is politically charged and is filled with expectations. And then Jesus dials this expectation up even further when he says, today, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And I, I bet that synagogue was just buzzing as people turned to each other and said, did you just hear what he said? Today, today the revolution has begun. Today, we're going to start checking those Romans out. Today, we get the land back. By the way, it's a similar thing that causes the Romans to want to crucify Jesus. One of the two charges that's brought against Jesus is that he refused to pay taxes to Caesar. I don't know if you ever noticed that. But the the gospel writers are pretty clear that Jesus did pay his taxes to Caesar. So why is this one of the charges that um, the Sanhedrin charges Jesus with? It's because they know that the Romans do one thing to people who don't pay their taxes. They crucify them. Only two kinds of people got crucified. Slaves, runaway slaves, and insurrectionists, uh, revolutionaries. And the first thing that a revolutionary does is refuse to pay taxes. Taxes are tribute. Taxes are a sign of Rome's rule over you. So the first thing you do is you stop paying your taxes. Um, And likewise, our tithes are tribute as well. And the first thing that we do when we want to set aside Jesus as king of our lives is we stop paying our tithes. So that's another sermon for another time, but um, just made everybody feel uncomfortable. Um, Jesus' audience, I'm pretty sure the part about the poor and the prisoner and the blind and the oppressed just fell to the wayside. I bet they didn't even really hear that because they were so focused on this year of Jubilee and getting the land back. They wanted that so bad that I don't know if they even heard the rest. Um, Luke wants us to hear the rest, but I don't think their original audience did. And to be honest, I think Luke, in a way, has set us up to um, have some different expectations about Jesus than we often have as Christians reading this 2,000 years later. I mean, listen to what the angel Gabriel says to Mary when um, telling her she's going to be pregnant. It's from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. 
the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. In other words, Jesus is going to be king. I mean, that term, son of the most high, is actually a kingly term. And when we start adding those other terms, throne and David and reign and kingdom, I think we've covered all of the bases. Jesus is going to be Israel's king. That's what Mary expected because that's what the angel told her to expect. And then giving him the name Jesus was also pretty intense too. Um, Jesus uh, in Hebrew is Yeshua, which is the same name as Joshua, the guy who got the land in the first place. These are some pretty thick expectations that the angel is laying for Mary and for us as readers. And yet you, you feel the tension in the room when some of the people wonder if Jesus can actually meet these expectations. And they, they say, I mean, isn't he the hometown kid? We know Jesus. He's from Nazareth. Nazareth. We, and we know his dad, Joseph, um, the day laborer. Expectations can be confusing and they can harm our relationships. Expectations can harm our faith. Because when God doesn't give out, we want to kill him. Of course, we can't actually kill God. But if God doesn't do what we expect him to do, we can kill our relationship with him. And there are countless people who have given up praying because God didn't do what they expected him to do. When I was in my early 20s, when my mom had a massive stroke, she had just turned 60 two days before, happy birthday, uh, and she'd gone down to UCLA for cancer surgery. It was her third cancer surgery. Uh, she didn't ever have to have any more after that, but she had this, um, this stroke that left her paralyzed for, uh, on the left side of her body for the last 28 years of her life. But I remember being at her bedside, um, praying hard and believing hard that she would be healed. And it didn't happen. And I, I struggled to pray for months after that. There are couples who pray hard um, to get pregnant, and it's not happening. There are people who, sh who pray hard to get the right job, and it doesn't happen. There are people who pray for their wayward children, and it's just not happening. There are people who pray as Americans that so-and-so will get elected or that this policy will be implemented, and things aren't happening the way that we pray. And we ask, what, what is God doing why doesn't he do things the way they ought to be done, the way that I would do them if I were in charge? Because sometimes it feels like, is God even in charge at all? I think one of the problems with our expectations is that there's this desire for some impossibly perfect future 
that we, we want for ourselves and we think God ought to give to us. Or there's a, um, um, an idealized time in the past that we want to go back to, but it probably didn't actually exist. When I think about uh, going back to a certain place where we had a great vacation, but I forgot about the mosquitoes and about the family squabbles that we had while we were there. I think about when this church called a new pastor and they wanted to grow without changing in the process. So why would anyone want to kill Jesus? We know that ultimately Jesus ends up crucified. But why? Why would anybody want to do that? I mean, he's so nice, right? I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Meet the Parents. There's a scene toward the, the beginning of the movie where Ben Stiller's character is asked to pray for the meal. And he gives this absolutely brilliant prayer. In it, he says, you're such a good God to us, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And I think about that word, accommodating. It's what we really want, isn't it? That's what we want from God. We want a God we can drink a beer with. We want Buddy Christ from the movie Dogma. I don't know if you've seen the movie Dogma. I think it came out late, late 90s, around 2000. Very irreverent. Um, but the Catholic Church is setting aside the crucifix as its image of Christ because it's kind of, kind of da- a downer. And this is the new image they want. Buddy Christ. We want a God who will make us feel good who will keep us safe, who will come running when we call, who will never complain, who will cozy up with us on the sofa. But that's a D-O-G, not a G-O-D. Talk about dogma. A friend once told me that the way to tell who loves you most, your dog or your spouse, is to put both of them in the trunk and close it Come back three hours later and then see which one is excited to see you. (laughs) And frankly, we do the same with God. So why would anybody want to kill Jesus? Because Jesus doesn't meet our expectations. And that includes our expectation that he's nice. Actually, one couple who left the congregation when I was in Lebanon, did so because in a sermon I said, Jesus isn't nice. But he wasn't nice then, and he isn't nice now. That doesn't mean he's not good. He is good, but good doesn't mean nice. He isn't Buddy Christ. When we get to my half of the passage, and we're finally there, that's okay, we're down at, we're at the last part of the sermon. When we get to this part of the passage, Jesus doesn't give the people what they want. They want him to do miracles like he did in Capernaum. I mean, come on, Jesus. You're, at, you're in your hometown. Give us a trick. But he refuses. 
Not only that, he insults them. They wanted him to kick out the Romans, and he'd fed those expectations by reading from Isaiah 61 this this passage passage that, this jubilee passage that um, feeds this expectation that they'll get the land back. But instead of talking about how he's going to do that, he tells them two stories. One from the ministry of Elijah, one from the ministry of Elijah's disciple, Elisha. In these stories, Jewish people don't get the miracles, but foreigners do. In the first, it's a Sidonian widow, not a Jewish widow. But the second is is far worse. It's the reason why they want to kill Jesus. In the second story, it's not a Jew who gets healed of leprosy. It's Naaman, the general of the Syrian army. Naaman, the head of the army occupying the land of Israel. In a not-so-veiled way, instead of promising to kick out the current Roman occupiers in a year of jubilee move, Jesus is saying it's more likely that God is going to pick their side. Wow. Talk about messing with people's expectations. Why would Jesus do this? Maybe it's because he's not on anyone's side. Maybe it's because he's just as for the Romans as he's for the Jews. Maybe it's because the politics of occupation aren't so all-consuming for him as they are for his listeners. You see, Jesus is okay with you and me going through pain, even incredible pain. And that includes the racial and economic and political pain that his Jewish listeners and he himself was experiencing at that time. He's moved by our pain. There is absolutely no question about that. And he hates injustice. But he doesn't move the heavens to keep us from experiencing it. There's a reason why the same Jesus who said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, also said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Self-denial and the cross are built into our discipleship. Jesus doesn't hide this from us. This is supposed to be one of our main expectations for ourselves as followers of Jesus. And the cross wasn't just about physical pain. It was humiliation. It was domination. And yet, it's the way Jesus went, and it's the way that he leads us as we follow him. But what do we do? We treat him like a backward dog and are disappointed when he doesn't fetch for us. But if the angel Gabriel was right that Jesus is the king, then he's the king. We follow Jesus. He doesn't follow us. And so my question for us, including myself, is 
what do we expect from Jesus? Do we, like his original listeners, expect him to check our political boxes? I'm serious about that. We, We as Americans are really into our politics. So do we expect him to check our political boxes? Do we, like, um, do we expect him to give us health and a cozy life, a meaningful career and a well-funded retirement? Do we expect him to keep us from pain? And what, we, what will we do if our lives don't match up with the dreams we have for ourselves? with the things that we think God ought to be doing for us and giving to us, or what we think God ought to be doing in the world around us. Do we stop talking to God? Do we stop tithing? Do we stop going to church? Do we stop reading our Bibles? Do we do whatever we can to poke off God since we can't, poke at God since we can't throw him over a cliff? Or do we, in company with the psalmists, keep praying both our joys and our sorrows? Do we see the need for jubilee around us and get busy with our one thing that we can do, but offer it all to God, knowing that he may be in no hurry to deal with the things that I find urgent? Do we echo the words of Job Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. Do we echo the words of Jesus from the cross? Into your hands I commit my spirit. This isn't a path we walk alone. We walk this together, and even better than that, Jesus walks it with us. He walked it before us. He walks it with us now, and he will be on the other side of it. And the New Testament authors speak with one voice telling us that our expectations of what lies ahead are absolutely meager to what the reality is. Our expectation for this life and for the life to come are far too tame. Listen to how 1 Peter chapter 4 addresses expectations. Dear friends, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. It's all about our expectations. And one last thing. Um... For those who who have read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis, there's a favorite scene where a beaver is talking with some children about Aslan, this Christ-like figure in the story. He addresses their expectations when he says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe. I shall rather feel nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good, 
He's the king, I tell you. Pray with me. Lord, um, receive our expectations. We, just, we have so many of them. Expe- expectations for ourselves. Expectations for spouses. Expectations for kids. Expectations for this church. And we have a whole pile of expectations for you. Lord, uh, forgive us for how we've constrained you by our expectations. You are the king. And you are good. God, we know that you're going to do things far differently than we would, we would choose for you to do them. Help us to accept that. Help us to not stop praying. Help us to not stop hoping in you because you are our great hope. And lead us into the bigger and better thing, far beyond our expectations, better than getting the land back, the reconciliation of all things. We pray this in your name and for your glory. Amen.